Amen. If you would join me in 1 John, that's going to be our passage of Scripture uh, today. 1 John chapter 2 uh, will be our passage this morning. How many of you enjoy working on a puzzle? All right. And I mean like a puzzle you assemble, right? I'm not talking about the puzzle of life or the puzzle of uh, what will help your children obey, uh, but a puzzle, a picture, something that has all of these pieces, a jigsaw puzzle that you put together, that you snap together. And an essential part of that puzzle, putting that puzzle together, is having a picture on the front of the box so you know what it is that you're building. So you can see the landscape, the scenery, the items that you're putting together as you assemble this jigsaw puzzle. Now you can go through the process of building a puzzle without that picture. You can do this without seeing the picture. You can go through just by trial and error and figure out which pieces fit with which. In fact, there are, there are puzzles that are actually designed to be put together this way. Maybe you've seen that there are puzzles that it is just white. There is no image or it's just a spectrum of colors, right? And there's no way to take the image and say, okay, the, the greens go over here and the blues go over here, but you're just by trial and error finding the right pieces. And some people do that because they, they enjoy the challenge of it. But that's only doable in that scenario because there's a finite number of pieces. There's a thousand or five thousand pieces. There's not an infinite number. That doesn't work for life. You can't approach life by figuring out the next step or the next piece just by trial and error because there isn't a finite number of decisions you can make tomorrow. There's an infinite number. And you can spend your entire life trying the wrong pieces and never find the one that fits. In fact, many of us, we live our lives just doing this. We just trial and error. We're just going to try things until something works. And those that are lucky enough to find something that does work, it's so late in life that there's little life to live. It would be much better if we had a picture of what life was supposed to look like. What we believe we find in Scripture is this template for how we are meant to live life, the life that we are made for. And the mission of Faith Church is to help people find that vision, find that mission, find that purpose. We are building the church. Our friends and neighbors will join and our children will lead. And we do that building not by constructing bricks and timber, but by building people. By putting together puzzle pieces and not going through all of the options of life and trying them trial by error, but rather having a template, a picture to follow, and that picture to follow is Jesus. And people who are trying to make their life follow the template of Jesus are called disciples. So what we're trying to do here at Faith Church is make disciples. And as we discussed last Sunday, it's much easier to build something if you know what it is that you're building. And so we're in the middle of, de of clarifying what does it mean to make a disciple? What is it that we're trying to make? What is a disciple? And last week we looked that a disciple is a person who abides in the word of Jesus. Today we'll look at the fact that a disciple is someone who walks 
in the ways of Jesus. And next Sunday, we'll see that a disciple is someone who does the works of Jesus. To discuss walking in his way, let's read 1 John chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Before we get to the heart of this text that we'll be studying this morning, I want you to see this context, these verses that come just before it. Because we're going to talk about this passage, which makes it clear that we should be walking in Jesus' way, living in obedience to His commands, but this passage starts with the clarification that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. John is saying, listen, I'm going to tell you how to live the Christian life, but I want to be clear. Let me be up front one more time. Let me say it again, that you don't become a Christian by living the Christian life. You don't earn a relationship with God by being godly. He says, let me clarify again, godliness does not produce a relationship with God, but rather a relationship with God produces godliness. Godliness does not produce a relationship with God, but rather a relationship with God produces godliness. And John uses this major word here. He uses the word propitiation. And I'm going to guess that none of us use this in conversation this past week. And this word does a lot of heavy lifting in this verse. And what it means is it means to appease or satisfy. Now, perhaps some of you this morning on your way in, you did not notice that there were some muffins in the foyer. You missed out. And right now your stomach is starting to grumble a little bit, right? It's growling. Isn't it interesting that we say that when our, our stomach is making noise, that we don't say, hey, my stomach is bubbling, right? or my stomach is smiling, we say my stomach is growling, right? And the more it growls, the angrier it's getting, right? The hungrier you get, the more angry your stomach is, and it won't be appeased until it is fed, right? Good news, I checked, there's still some muffins, you can grab some on your way out today, all right? You can appease that hunger. That food appeases the hunger. Now, it might be that the thing you're, you're longing for, that you're, you're craving, is not the muffin in the foyer, but after this, you're going to go and you're going to have some really spicy Mexican food. Or you're going to go and you're going to get some pizza that has jalapenos on it, right? That you're craving something spicy. And that might appease your hunger, but if you're here today and your stomach is a little bit upset, right? That's probably not the thing that will appease your stomach. Right? I'm feeling for the pregnant ladies in the room right now while I'm talking about spicy foods and that type of thing. Right? And if your stomach is a little upset and that's the thing that won't satisfy it, it would just upset it more. Right? It's going to make you sick. The Bible tells us that God has wrath towards sin. That when he sees sin, it makes him 
angry. And it's not an anger like you and I losing our temper anger. It's a God despises the wrongness of sin and wants everything to be made right. And we think that we can appease that anger with our own good works and our own good deeds. And what scripture tells us in Isaiah is that our righteous works and good deeds are like garbage. It's like us trying to appease God with something that only makes him more sick. So what can appease him? Well, the word propitiation means to appease the anger of. Jesus is the only one who can nullify the anger of God, who can appease the wrath of God towards sin. And he has done that for us. The justice that must rain down upon sin, Jesus has stepped in and taken that, that, the brunt of that punishment upon himself in the cross. You and I could never satisfy this wrath. We can only make it worse, but Jesus has done this for us. And so for this reason, the gospel is both terrifying and good news. Stephanie said earlier, like, I can't tell you about God without telling you about your sin, but I can't tell you about your sin without telling you about God's grace. That's the gospel. And so Jesus being propitiation for us is Jesus appeasing the anger of God. And so John says, Let, let's just be clear on that once more. In Faith Church, let's be clear on that. I'm going to talk to you this morning about walking in the ways of Jesus, but let's be clear that it is only Jesus acting on our behalf that God's wrath could be appeased. It's only through Him that we could be justified. Now let's keep on reading. Look at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And verse 6 is our key verse. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We probably all had this experience where you were just reading about something or you were just thinking about someone and then it comes up in conversation the next day. And you say something like, I was, I was just reading about that. Or someone mentions a person that they ran into someone. You go, I was, I was just thinking about them the other day. I just looked at a photo of them, of us back years ago, right? And with these little coincidences, we, we love them. But now in our digital age, there are these things happening that are a little bit more creepy, right? We have a conversation with our spouse about this item maybe we should buy. And then we look at our phone and it's just nothing but ads for that thing, right? Now, normally... Normally, we love it when someone anticipates our needs. If I'm at Lowe's and I have to buy a door, I love that right there in the aisle where the doors are at, they got shims. You know what they, they know? You're putting in a door, you probably need shims. Here they are. I love that in the aisle where you can buy a toilet, 
There's the wax ring. They, they know you're going to need that, right? Instead of me having to go look through another three aisles, it's right there. They have anticipated my need and they've met it, right? And I guarantee you that it's the most expensive shims that are right there and it's the most expensive wax ring that's right there. But you know what? It's just so convenient. Thank you. Thank you, Lowe's, right? But when Facebook does it, I say, hold on, wait a minute. Who's been listening to my conversations, right? Who, who, who's been spying on me? It creeps us out when it's done by some algorithm that has apparently cookies on every website that knows everything that we've looked at recently and what we're currently about to buy. The information that corporations have on us is mind-boggling and they, they seem to know exactly when it is that we're about to make some other buying decision. A story that I tell pretty often that I remember reading years ago is that there was this father who he called Target. He was very upset. And he was upset with Target because his 16-year-old daughter had received a brochure addressed to her in the mail, and it was all of these baby products. And he said, what's wrong with you guys? You're, you're sending this teenager these, these products for babies. Are you trying to encourage my young daughter? Of course, the manager had really no idea why this had happened. He was so apologetic. But then that same man called Target back about three weeks later. And he apologized to that manager because his daughter was already pregnant. And Target knew it before he did. Because Target knows that the moment you find out you're pregnant, there are like three things you go and buy. And when you buy those three things, I don't know what they are, all right? When you go buy those three things, they say, let's ship this person baby clothes catalogs, right? They're anticipating the need and they want to be the one to meet it, right? The reason that John is writing this letter isn't that he has some information about the, the, the people in the church that he had been some, done some spying on this. It was because... Some things had happened to this church, and John had a feeling that he knew the questions that they were going to ask next. There had some, been some people in their church that had been teaching false doctrine, and there had been a large group of people that had left their church as a result. John's writing this letter for a specific reason. He's overcoming some false doctrine that has been, has been taught, and he's writing to, to, to encourage them after they've watched these people that they attended church with, that they walked with, that they were, they were in fellowship with, wander off. He addresses this specifically when you look down at verse, thir verse 19 in this chapter. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They have experienced a falling away of a, of a section, of a grouping in their fellowship, in their churches. And John is writing to them because they've watched these people in their congregation wander off, reject the faith, and so forth. And he is anticipating the next question that's going to pop into their minds. If those people weren't genuine, if it wasn't real for them, how do I know what's real in my life? 
He's anticipating that they're going to watch these people that they have attended church with suddenly not care about anything that have to do with the things of God, no longer holding to the teachings of Jesus. And these are people that maybe they've looked up to, maybe people that have been in the faith longer than them, and they think to themselves, if it can happen to them, what will keep it from happening to me? If it wasn't real in them, how do I know that what I have is real? And perhaps some of you have been through this exact same scenario. Someone that you love, that you attended church with, that, that, that discipled you, that was a mentor to you, has fallen. They have walked away from the faith and it's caused you to call into question your faith. And John is writing this book to these believers so that they might know that they know him. That they might know that they know. That they might be full of assurance. What John makes clear to us in this book of 1 John is that we can be confident that we are in Christ. You can know that if you were to die today that you will be in heaven. You can have a confidence you do not have to live in this perpetual fear. I don't know if it's real or not. I hope I'm doing good enough. I hope I'm really, really showing Jesus that I mean business. You don't need to live in this fear because it is not based upon what you do. It's based upon what Jesus has done. And you have these signs that John is giving us here that you can have this confidence. So last week we looked in John chapter 8 where Jesus said, You are truly my disciples, or you are my disciples indeed, if you abide in my word. And then here in 1 John, John repeats these in his own words in verses 3 to 5. Let's read those again. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Then John goes on to say, the one who abides in him ought himself ought to walk just as he walked. That's verse 6. Ought to walk just as he walked. So a disciple abides in Jesus' word, and a disciple walks in Jesus' way. At the beginning of the message last week, I talked about a piece of furniture that most of us had never heard of. I talked about a katsatsu, and I said, you wouldn't be able to build that because you have no idea what it is. And then I explained that it's this Japanese table that has a built-in heater, right? And then... Maybe you have a little bit better understanding, but I said what would be best is if you had a picture, right? Jesus is the picture for us. He's the template we copy. He's the example. He's the image. Jesus is the picture on the front of the box that we're trying to replicate in the puzzle of our life that we are building. Disciples were said to follow their teachers so closely that they would be covered in the dust kicked up by their master or their mentor. And a blessing that you would pray over a disciple is may you be covered in the dust of your master. What were they doing? They were following so closely to Jesus. They were just staying so close to him that they would be like him. They would do what he did. 
It would follow his ways. Now listen, the ways of Jesus are numerous. And thank God we have four different accounts of Jesus' life that tell us the way that he conducted himself and his manner and his demeanor. We have all of these interactions. We have all of these conversations. We have all of these sermons. But John would say at the end of his book, but if all of the things that Jesus did did, had been written down, there was not enough books in the world to contain it. So they couldn't give us everything. And so... There are everyday situations that you face that we don't have a story of Jesus facing it, right? Like there's nothing in Mark chapter 3 about what to do when someone unfriends you on Facebook, right? Jesus never faced that, right? There's nothing in John 7 about when Jesus was cut off in a chariot, right? And how you respond in that situation in your car. But what we do have is we have these pictures of Jesus's life and his manner and his demeanor. And so that we can learn of him and then apply those ways to the rest of our lives. And this is where the very popular phrase, what would Jesus do came from? And then it was shortened into the acronym WWJD. How many of you had a WWJD bracelet, right? I'm sorry, Gen Z, that you didn't get to experience that. I mean, everybody had a WWJD bracelet there for a little while, right? I, that, 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 that trend took off when I was in high school, all right? I didn't just have a WWJD bracelet. I had multiple colors of WWJD bracelets. And the, the question, what would Jesus do, it almost became kind of, it, it, it kind of lost meaning. Became this thing that people were wearing. It was a bracelet. It was a sticker on people's car, right? But that idea and that phrase and that concept, it it really came from a book called In His Steps. If you've ever if you've ever read the book of In His Steps, you know what a great book that is. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But it's basically a church, a single church, decides everything we face in life, every decision that we have to make. We're going to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation, and we're going to do what Jesus would do. And it's interesting to me that the book is called In His Steps. And what is it that Jesus invites us to do? He invites us to follow Him. And what is it that we're talking about when we say follow Him? It means walk in His ways. Live like He lived. Now, I I don't have enough time this morning in what's remaining of this service to cover the ways of Jesus in all four Gospels. That's what we try to do on a regular basis. We try to look at the life of Jesus every Sunday. We can't cover all of his ways, but here's here's what I want to do instead. I think there are a few patterns that we see again and again and again in the life of Jesus that it would be a great place to start. You know, at my funeral, um, people might tell a story about something I did or said. Um, They might tell a thing from when I was 17 or when I was 37, or God willing, if I live that long, when I'm 57, right? But the real consensus of who I am as a person is not gonna be gleaned from one interaction or one sermon or one quote. It's gonna be my life. I, I ran a marathon when I was 29. That was 10 years ago. I have not run a marathon since then, okay? 
Right now I'm on pace to run a marathon every 29 years. So best, like best case scenario, I run three in my life, okay? I don't think that anybody at my, at my funeral is gonna go, man, he was such a marathon runner, right? Most of you had no idea that that had ever happened, right? But things that I do on a regular basis, things that are patterns in my life, things that I consistently do, those kind of tell you who I am, right? And what we see in Jesus's life is there are some patterns. And I don't even have time to go into all of those, but there are three that I really want to point out this morning. And just a good rule of thumb here, if you're going to walk in the ways of Jesus, is just ask yourself in the situations of life, what would Jesus do? But let's not just wait for those situations to come up and ask what, should, what, what would Jesus do, but let's also take some of the patterns that Jesus had in his life and let's build them into our lives, all right? The, the first pattern that we notice in the life of Jesus when you read the Gospels is Jesus belonged to a church. There are at least 10 occasions in Jesus' ministry that took place in a synagogue. Now, that's not the temple, the temple was one location in Jerusalem. Synagogues were around. And so we have multiple occasions where he's in the temple, the one location in Jerusalem that everyone would travel to to worship at. But we have at least 10 occasions where he's ministering in a synagogue, which is a small gathering about this size of Jewish believers who live in that town or region. And Jesus showed up to him. And not only do we have these 10 occasions, Scripture tells us in Luke 4.16 that when he came to Nazareth, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Now, if I tell you that Jesus went to a church, you're like, well, of course he did. That's his job, right? That's what he, I mean, that's kind of like you go to church, Pastor Daniel. It's your job. You have to be here, Okay. Um, by the way, I'm not just here this morning because it's my job. I, I like being at church. When I'm not speaking, I like coming. I love coming to church when I'm not speaking. It, it is like, listen, when I come to church and I'm not speaking, I don't already know what the message is going to be, right? I don't have to like worry about forgetting something. I don't have stress dreams the night before about forgetting my sermon, right? It's a, it's a joy. I also like going to church so much. I do it when I'm on vacation, I love going to another church when I'm on vacation. I like being in church, okay? So don't think that I'm just here because I'm paid to be here, okay? I, I, I love this. And Jesus didn't just go to church himself because it was his job or because he wanted to get in front of a religious gathering. Jesus went to church even when he wasn't speaking. The very... The very earliest stories that we have of Jesus as a boy is him at the temple with his family and they leave and he stays. All right. Some of you have uh, you're at church way longer than you want to be because your mom talks so long. Jesus stayed after mom left. All right. And not only this, he was going to the synagogue through his teen years and his 20s before he started his ministry in his 30s. Jesus belonged to a church. And I don't just say he attended a church, he belonged to a church because there is a difference. 
Going to synagogue was his custom. And, and hear me on this, okay? Some of you, you're here this morning, and like, we've made mistakes already today. And you know we messed up here, we messed up here, and you're, you're keeping track, right? You know that we've messed up some things. Pastor Daniel's messed up some things already, right? Can you imagine what it would be like to go to church and be Jesus and listen to someone teach and be like, oh, that's not what Moses said, you know? Um, right? Like, ah, that didn't happen that way. I was there, you know? <laughs> Jesus went... And not only do we have record of Jesus going to church, which he knew to be corrupt, and he would call out corruption and hypocrisy in the church, he even gave. He gave to support the ministry of the organization that would put him to death. He submitted to this gathering with these people. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say that you must Go to church to be saved. That you must attend church faithfully to have your sins forgiven. Okay? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But I like the way that Tony Evans said it. He said, people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they're right. Salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone. You also don't have to go home to be married. Stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. Paul would say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now, notice he says yourselves. He's talking to believers. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we don't expect you to be at church because you're not in the family yet. But once you're in the family, it's this expectation. And if you're not in the family yet, we're glad that you're here checking it out. We hope that you love it and you want to become part of the family. But for those who have put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ, who call themselves Christians, they should be disciples and they should pattern themselves after the lives of Jesus and the apostles after him and every other disciple. And every other disciple who has grown has grown in the context of a local church. To John, this clarification that these people had left was an indication that their faith was not genuine. Charles Spurgeon said it strongly this way. A faith that never gets you to church probably won't get you to heaven either. That's really strong language. And what he's saying is, if it's real, this is what will happen. And that's exactly what John says towards the end of this chapter. If they're not going to be a part of us, they probably weren't a part of us. So one, Jesus belonged to a church. Two... Jesus spent time in God's presence. Verse 28 of this same chapter, John says, Now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Luke 5.16 tells us of a time that Jesus' ministry is growing. More and more people are coming to listen to Jesus teach. They want to hear what he has to say. More and more there are people that need healing. There are people that need help. But Luke 5.16 tells us that as his ministry grew, he would often take time alone to pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
Jesus' ministry grows, and on numerous occasions we see him slipping away to be by himself in prayer. Now listen, I guarantee you that everyone here, if I were to ask you, is your life busy, you would say yes, right? Every one of us feels that our life is busy. We feel like we have all of these. Listen, nobody had more important stuff to do than Jesus. Nobody had more people needing him than Jesus. And Jesus, in the busiest season of his ministry, regularly took time away to pray, to be with the Father. I know that, that sometimes we think, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty established in my Christian faith. I feel like I kind of get it. I kind of understand it. I'm pretty faithful. I feel like I can go a few days without praying because nobody, nobody has reached the level that Jesus was at in their spiritual walk. Jesus is God the Father. And he is taking time to be with God. Jesus himself did not feel that he was above the need to spend time in prayer. It's been said that the Gospel of Mark is like the action movie of Jesus' life because Mark tells us the story of Jesus' life with the most action and he constantly uses words like, and then immediately, and then right after that, he's just constantly trying to get through the whole story, right? But even though Mark is trying to move quickly through the story of Jesus' life, there are 13 different occasions where Mark includes, he doesn't, he doesn't edit it out. He doesn't think, okay, this is something we can skip over. Mark includes that Jesus slipped away to spend time alone in prayer. Things like Mark chapter 3 where it says Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Mark chapter 6, after Jesus had sent away the crowds, he went up into the mountainside by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was still there alone. Mark 14, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the disciples, sit here while I pray. A pattern in the life of the Son of God he belonged to a church and he regularly sought out time to be alone with God, just him and God. And, and, and what I, the sense I get in reading the life of Jesus is it wasn't this chore he had to do, but this thing he was desperate for that refreshed him, that encouraged him. And friend, I don't want this for you because I want you to mark this notch on your belt or knock off this item on your to-do list, I believe that it will refresh you to spend time with the Father. Jesus belonged to a church. Jesus spent time alone in prayer. And then another major pattern that I see in Jesus' life is that he spent, he, he lived his life in Christian community. I like what one, one person said. Um, Nobody talks about Jesus' greatest miracle, which is having 12 close friends in your 30s. Jesus not only had the 12 disciples who were formerly associated with him, he had many others. And there are people in the scriptures that we're just told that was a friend of Jesus. Mary, Martha, their brother Lazarus, these were Jesus' friends. Jesus was always sitting down to a meal with people, so much so that he was called a drunkard by his enemies and a friend of sinners. 
Jesus' opponents basically called him a party animal because he was always surrounded with people. A really heartbreaking story I heard years ago. There was this guy who was giving his testimony about how God had saved him from a life of alcoholism. And he was talking about some of the crazy times in his life, some of the times that he just really made bad choices when he was drinking with friends. And he said, you know, that, that is the one thing that I miss, though, from my, my earlier life, is we always had a group of friends that we could get together with and drink. For him, the Christian life would have been this lonely experience. That's not what Jesus did. Somehow both the world and the church have bought into the lie that the church is supposed to be this institution that helps you on your individualized, boring pursuit of religion. And that's not what we're meant to be. That's not it at all. Jesus was surrounded by people who were on the mission and people who he was welcoming in. John would say in this chapter, in, in the verses following, look down at verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John said one of the marks of, of being a disciple, one of the marks of of being someone who knows Christ is you love the brethren. You love other Christians. And our, our hope, our desire is that Faith Church would not just be a church that you attend, but it would be the church where your best friends attend because you've developed strong relationships here. That if there was a crisis in your life, you could think of immediately five people in our church that you could reach out to and have them pray for you or encourage you or help you. That's what we desperately want. And we know that this is not only beautiful and enjoyable, but it's formational. So much of what we learn is caught not taught. So much of what we learn is picked up by walking with one another. What Jesus did by setting up this model is he invited the disciples to follow him and then they were able to turn to others after them and say, follow me as I follow Jesus. And Paul would say that quite literally, follow me as I follow Christ. And the last 2,000 years of church history it's been this unbroken fellowship, this chain that leads all the way back to Jesus and the disciples, the apostles, the early church, looking to people behind them and say, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. And if I'm not following Jesus, if I veer off, you stay with Jesus. But walk with me as I follow Jesus. A way of Jesus, a pattern in Jesus' life is that he surrounded himself with other people who were on the mission. I don't want Faith Church to just be the hour you do on Sunday mornings. I want this to be a movement of God's people that you are a part of, that you're doing life with, that you can rely on. I want Faith Church to be this 
cord that is stronger for every strand that is added, that is unified around the purpose and the mission of making disciples who make disciples, who abide in the word of Jesus, walk in his ways, and do his works. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that we would be a people who walk in your ways. Lord, I ask that you would reach out to the heart who's here this morning and they're seeking you out. Lord, they're here today because they're searching for you. Lord, may they hear your spirit call to them. Lord, I ask for the one who, who has claimed to be a Christian, but they're recognizing in their life they're not a disciple, they're not a follower, they're not abiding in your word, they're not walking in your ways. Lord, may they have that realization this morning, recognize that there is something that is lacking or missing. Lord, I pray that our church would be a disciple-making church and that we would be clear on what that is. Work in this time of response, we ask in your name. Amen.